This is episode 19 of Refocus with Lindsay Gensel, and today we're diving into the art of talking to children with speech pathologist and Harvard lecturer Rebecca Rowland. This is your first time listening, a plain old welcome. Thank you for giving us a chance. I hope that you go back and listen to a few of the other episodes that we've done over the last couple of months. We launched this project, which is a collaboration with ADHD Online back in May for Mental Health Awareness Month. And it's kind of insane to think that we're right there approaching episode 20. So again, if this is your first time listening, thank you for giving us a shot. If you are a avid listener and you come back week after week, thank you for the support and for giving us a purpose for putting this out there. I'll say this over and over again, but this podcast is a work in progress. And every week we are trying to put out something that you guys can connect with. And so if there's a topic you are just itching to hear or something else you want to share, get in touch with us. Easiest way to do that is through email, podcast at ADHDonline.com. You can also connect with both the podcast and with me on social media, at RefocusPod on Instagram and Twitter, and then at Lindsay Gensel on both of those platforms as well. I did just get my Facebook account back. It was hacked for about a year and a half, and I have yet to decide if I want to dive back into that because truthfully, my mental health is so much better when I'm not on social media, but there's this market monopolization for promoting stuff and building listeners and all of that stuff that comes with social media, and it just overwhelms me. Anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Before we get into our conversation with Rebecca Rowland today, I do want to take care of just a few housekeeping items. Coming up on Wednesday, September 21st. So this is just a couple of days after this episode drops on September 19th. There is a webinar with Tyler Dorsey, who you met last week on episode 18, and Caitlin Mabry on how to survive the school year. Now, again, this is happening on September 21st. You can find out more information by going to ADHDonline.com backslash webinars. If you have a student who puts off work until the last minute or lacks study skills or has a hard time managing a planning system, if they even have one, Tyler and Caitlin's webinar on how to survive the school year is something you should definitely consider attending. This one-hour conversation is kind of the first step to break the vicious cycle that so many of us with ADHD know too well. Getting excited as school starts, thinking that things are going to change, but then not being able to actually put into motion the actual changes needed to make a difference, to make things less chaotic. 
Again, that's happening September 21st at 12 p.m. Eastern. You can find all the details by going to ADHDonline.com backslash webinars. And the great news is if you can't attend it live, you can sign up and then get access to the recording as soon as it's available. So make sure to check that out. I also want to talk about the October project. We mentioned last week that it has a name. We are calling the not meant to be a super secret project, but somehow became a super secret project, refocused together. And we will be sharing more on what that actually means here shortly. Of course, October is ADHD Awareness Month, and I am so excited and scared and a little overwhelmed about what we are doing And I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So that will be coming up shortly. If you haven't already, make sure you're following Refocus with Lindsay Gensel wherever you're listening to the podcast now. You can also follow us on social media because we'll be sharing all of the details and keeping you up to date. I also wanted to share a fun little opportunity I had last week. Myron Metcalf is someone I've worked with for a very long time. If you follow college basketball, you've definitely seen his work for ESPN. He's a senior college basketball reporter. He also hosts a nationally syndicated radio show. And he also has a column with the Star Tribune, which is Minnesota's largest newspaper. And his most recent column was a survival guide for teen girls and their loving parents. It was inspired by his own daughter starting high school. His oldest started freshman year and he felt a little unprepared. So he reached out to six women and asked us, I was included in the six, to share advice that we wish we could tell our ninth grade selves. And I included a link to the article in the show notes. I think it's so well written. It's so from the heart. And there's really great advice there from five other women, women that I know and I work with and I respect. And like anything, there's ways to take advice for a ninth grader and use it in your own lives. So that is linked in the show notes. And it's funny because pulling the curtain back, I taped my conversation with Rebecca Rowland just like a week or two before Myron reached out to me. And so I actually say something in today's episode that I used in the advice that I sent along to Myron. For me, when I look back at high school and even middle school, it's very clear to me that my friendships and my struggle to maintain them and develop them really took over and just kind of ruined a lot of my teen years for me. And so that's what I focused on, friendships in high school and how to kind of navigate that area. And you can hear what I shared right after my conversation with Rebecca Rowland. Hello, and welcome back to Refocus with Lindsay Gensel. I'm your host, Lindsay Gensel, and I'm very excited to dive into today's topic about inclusion. We all know how important inclusion is, especially for those of us who are neurodivergent and are especially sensitive to feelings of rejection or not belonging. 
Whether it's actually happening or not, I call those the stories that I tell myself that no one wants me around or I'm unwelcomed. And the unfortunate part is I have very vivid memories of feeling that way as a child. And I think the fact that we even use the word inclusion and that we understand the meaning behind it and the importance of the meaning, it's a great reminder of how far we've come as a society in identifying and understanding the actual needs of human beings. And inclusion and cohesion are not only crucial in how we develop as humans, but also how we thrive. And so I'm very excited to bring Rebecca Rowland into the conversation. She is a speech pathologist, writer, and Harvard lecturer, and she's the author of The Art of Talking with Children, which looks at using the interactions you're having with the kids in your life to build the skills they need to thrive throughout life. And I mean... There is a reason why we say stardom young. The Art of Talking with Children also has an entire chapter dedicated to talking about differences in learning, thinking, and attention, which makes it a perfect fit for this podcast. And Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. Yes, thanks for having me. This is wonderful. So a couple of things I want to get out of the way right off the bat. One, I keep wanting to say your children, but a lot of people don't have children, I don't have children, or they have grown children who are out of the house. And I really appreciated the emphasis I found in looking over your website and and looking at the book on the phrase, children in your life, because it's just as important for me as someone who doesn't have children, but has nephews and friends with kids. And, you know, I volunteer in a school. So like, it's a very important thing for me to be learning as well as parents. You know, it's this big picture. Definitely. And I think that I see that so much is sometimes we emphasize sort of parenting as really separate from, you know, teaching or caregiving or being an aunt or something like that. But these are all, you know, we need the same skills. We need the same empathy. We need the same engagement. And so I do think that this book and just this approach is so important for anyone who interacts with kids in any way. And similarly, I imagine some of the things that you talk about in the book can be takeaways for adults who might need a refresh on their own communication skills and styles. Exactly. Actually, it's funny because so often when I talk about this book and this approach, um, people have said to me, oh, well, this actually could work really well with the adults in my life. And I do definitely see the applications every day. So I'm curious how you found yourself here, how your career and your experiences brought you to write this book and what the motivation was behind it. Definitely. Yeah. So I'm the mom of two kids, um, ages five and 10, as well as a speech pathologist and a lecturer. And so for me, I started out being really interested in conversations from more of an academic standpoint and saying, well, teachers and kids, how do we help the classroom have a good learning environment? But then when I became a parent, I realized, oh, so much of that about children and learning and teaching could be applied to parenting and to taking care of kids but nobody's talking about this. So I realized sort of in the parenting world and the parenting literature, there just was no information about, well, what kind of conversations are we having with kids? It was about, you know, discipline, about diapering, about, you know, all of the new things you need for babies. Um, But there's so little about, well, what can we do to actually help children thrive based on how we talk with them? Um, So that's where I found myself really wondering. And I went on this journey to figure that out. It's very interesting. We're very early in our conversation and I'm already having these like light bulb moments because 
I love the phrase, you don't know what you don't know. And I have always viewed speech pathology as helping someone speak better. I didn't realize that there was a level to it of how we speak or the tones we use or the topics we use. And so I just would love it if you could explain a little bit of like the depth behind those two words, because your career is obviously a lot more in depth than I had any idea. But again, going back to my favorite phrase, you don't know what you don't know. Definitely. It's so funny because so many people, when they meet me or other speech pathologists, they say, oh, you know, you must work with kids who can't say their R's, you know, or you must work with kids who aren't talking yet. And I actually don't work with kids of either of those issues, although I have in my training, um, because speech pathology is actually a hugely diverse field. Um, So you might find a speech pathologist, for example, working with um, someone who has aphasia. They've had a rock climbing incident and they have some brain injury. For me, I work with a lot of what we talk about social pragmatics of language, which means the way we use language socially. So that's sort of, you know, staying on topic. It's how do you enter a conversation? How do you manage, um, you know, when someone feels rejected, what do you do? Um, How do you actually signal that you want to leave a conversation? All of those kind of small social issues are also what we talk about in speech pathology and what a lot of kids have struggles with. So there's just so much more to the field than, you know, what we think about typical speech uh, in terms of coming out with words. In the book, you use the phrase rich talk. And I'm wondering if you can kind of start before we dive too far into it, explaining what that is and what that term means as you were developing the book. Yeah. So rich talk is the frame I've used when we ask the question, how can we have meaningful conversations with kids? So for me, rich talk was the answer I came up with. Um, And it has three components. So A, B, C. A stands for adaptive, meaning you're kind of going with the mood or the flow of your child, their temperament, um, where they like to talk, when they like to talk. B is back and forth, meaning you're focusing on how much you're talking, how much your child is talking, and emphasizing not just lecturing at them. And C is for child-driven, meaning you're really starting with what interests or motivates or worries a child. I'm wondering if there is a specific age that this starts at, or is this something that people should implement as soon as possible when it comes to how they're communicating with children? Yes. Really, the great thing about this approach is that you can do it at any age. And I think as soon as you can, as soon as you're aware of this, I would really emphasize that you can try it out. What's so interesting, I think, is that You can adapt to a child and to a child's communication needs at any age. And what I would encourage parents to do or caregivers or anyone to do as a start is really just kind of take a day and reflect a couple times a day what's going well in your interactions with your child or with a child in your life. Um, You know, when is your child opening up? When do you feel like things are flowing? What are your strengths as a speaker and listener? What are your child's strengths? And when you start by focusing on what's going well, you can start to build those areas up and you can start to see, well, it's actually, you know, even if you think, oh, my conversations with my kids aren't great, you can see that there are areas where it's probably working really well for you already and you can start to build those up. And I imagine that there's a lot of self-reflection that comes from the adult trying to figure out, like you mentioned, what are your strengths? How do you communicate the best? What time of day are you at your best? You know, all of those things do play a role. And then you throw life into the mix. And 
we get frustrated. People get angry. And a lot of times, I, we have a phrase in our house, um, my tone is not indicative of the way I feel. <laughs> and it's kind of <laughs> like, you just respond so quickly. And I know from my own experience growing up, I was very guarded because I didn't want bad tones. I didn't want bad reactions. And so if I ever got that from anyone, any adult in life, it's when I shut down. So what can adults be doing to create that safe environment and to, you know, make sure that the children in their life know that, you know, this is a safe space. And even though the way I respond, you know, my tone is not indicative of the way I feel about you. Definitely. Yeah. So there's a few key things. The first is just to notice what triggers you as an adult. So what from your environment do you feel like, oh, this is when I get really upset. This is when I really feel like I can't take it. And usually that has less to do with the child and more to do with you and your background. So it might be, for example, that when your child starts whining, that's when you really can't take it. Or maybe it's when your child says they're disappointed. And for you, that's really triggering because in your family, you weren't allowed to be disappointed. So just noticing what triggers you as a parent or as a caregiver is the first step. And then I think secondly, it's really all about taking the time to make small shifts in that whatever happens. So even to say, I'm going to just, instead of my instinctual reaction, which was just, you know, to lash out or to yell, I'm going to stop for one second. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to think through, like, for example, how could I teach this child something in this moment? What is my child or this child showing me that they don't know yet? Uh, you know, and flipping the situation. So rather than just, you know, thinking, oh, this is, he's doing it to annoy me. You know, what are they showing me that they don't know yet? Asking that question can really change the communication. So just trying that out um, once or twice, I think, can be a great start. I love that phrase, trying to figure out what they don't know yet, because I think that is something that is so instrumental, especially with children who have who are neurodivergent or have ADHD or autism or just march their own drum and, and just have no idea that what they're doing or the way that they're behaving or it's such a crucial time for kids to learn how to communicate, learn how to make mistakes, learn how, you know, relationships work. And so I'm curious, when we look at this time in children's lives, when they're learning how to communicate, especially with adults, how instrumental is it for their growth and like their futures down the line? Yeah, it's really key. I think what's so amazing about the conversations we have is that we can't see it, but they're actually, they accumulate on a daily basis to build trust and even to build children's skills. So things like kindness, confidence, and creativity. So in the book, I talk about a double promise, which is just these conversations matter in the moment and they also matter over time. So even though we don't actually see them forming children into creative and confident people, that's actually their potential. So that's why even if you feel like, oh, I don't know if I'm having this impact, I don't know if this is important, knowing that you know, helping establish this safe environment, helping children feel like they can trust you has so many benefits over time. And I imagine that the benefits go both ways, that adults who take on this idea of rich talk and changing the relationship between them and the children in their life, it goes both ways. Exactly. When children feel like they're safe and they're able to communicate, it's actually so much more interesting to be with them. I think that's one thing that we often miss. So they actually are able to express themselves. They're able to question more. And for me, I found that my own kids, you know, ask so many more kind of interesting and in-depth questions 
when they feel like they're in a place where they can do that safely. So let's talk about the conversations parents should be having with their children as they get ready to go back to school or they're in the first couple of weeks of school and they're in the midst of this new routine and it can be really overwhelming. And at the same time, they have new adults in their lives. And so this is really probably a crucial time for parents to like be setting a standard of expectation. Definitely. Yeah. So I think especially the fact of knowing there's new routines, knowing there's new expectations, being proactive about that is key. Um, otherwise, especially for kids who are neurodivergent, we can sometimes slip into habits that we don't like or that kids don't like. And then it's a real struggle to figure out how to undo those. So if you can have these conversations up front and actually develop these routines explicitly and especially help kids buy into them and actually create them in part, you're going a long way to being proactive and helping them have a good start to the year. One thing that I, as an adult, have come to terms with is that I wish I had been nicer as a child. I wish I had been more inclusive. Again, you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know the ramifications of your actions. And the unfortunate reality is that probably almost all of us are the villain in someone's story, whether we know about it or not. But there are conversations parents should be having with their children as they're going back to school about inclusivity. And there's a chapter in your book that talks about that. And for a lot of people, like myself, who have ADHD, it's not necessarily something that is like so loud and out there that people would know, oh, make an extra effort with Lindsay. She needs to know that she's a part of the group or things like that. And so those conversations start at home and like the examples start at home. Definitely. Yes. And I think it's so important. I think kids with ADHD and even those without ADHD really need to understand not just how to understand learning differences, but how to celebrate them. And really how to say it's actually a benefit to us as a classroom, as a family, as a community, that we have differences. So I really talk about learning, for example, like a kaleidoscope. You know, there's so many different patterns. When you turn the kaleidoscope, there's all these different ways to look at it. And all of those have value and interest. So if the kaleidoscope never changed and it was always the same, you know, it would be very boring to look at. Um, so I talk about kind of learning and thinking differences almost in that way. Because it really helps us see, you know, there's beauty to the fact that we all approach these things differently. And is there a way parents and adults should be starting these conversations? You know, is it is it best to just have it come up naturally? Is it something that you, you know, you start setting a certain time every day? I imagine it's obviously different for each family. But, like, how do you start getting into the routine of having these conversations and making sure that, like, little Joey is actually listening to you and, you know, not playing a video game or something like that because, I mean, I'm terrible at you know, checking my phone during a very important conversation and missing a lot of details. For sure. Yes. And I think one way to do this is to kind of set up routines and rituals that work for you. Um, not so you're having a chance to lecture at your child, but so you're really able to ask each other and answer questions that allow you to have these conversations. So one of those, for example, is that I found helpful is to talk about mistakes so in my house for some time, we would all talk at dinner about one thing we did that we felt was a mistake, why it might have happened, and then what we could do next time to possibly avoid it. And we took a really humorous approach. So it was even things like one time my husband pushed the up button instead of the down button on the elevator. So he had to go up 20 floors, um, 20 flights, and then had to wait all the way down to get you know back down. And so this kind of thing shows, I think it helps kids connect with us 
realizing that, okay, we're all making these mistakes. Sometimes they're big and serious, but sometimes they're not. We can kind of take a chance to laugh at ourselves and to recognize, okay, we can do something positive to help in the future. Uh, I think especially for learning differences, also talking about, you know, what's something that was hard for me to learn today? What was something that was easy for me to learn today? And for all of us to do this and to kind of analyze ourselves as people and learners really can make us seem more humble for our children and help us have these conversations more easily. I love that you mentioned the mistakes because I know one thing for me, even even now, even knowing about my ADHD, owning mistakes, I'm owning it in my head over and over again all day. But I go back to things, especially with my mom now, you know, I'm very open. I kind of own everything I did as a kid, good, bad, and ugly. And she's like, how did you not tell me that? And I was like, that was a part of the ADHD. It was all just sitting inside. And so I love the emphasis you're putting on like, you know, it's kind of like taking the curtain back and revealing the man behind it. Like we're, we're humans, you know, like parents make mistakes. Exactly. And, we're also messy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Something they'll learn as they become an adult, but it's also, it's great to acknowledge, you know, like mistakes happen and, and we can learn from them. And also this is a safe space for you to share some of those things. Exactly. And I think also to take an optimistic perspective of like, okay, it happened. We all see it. We're all able to kind of witness that, but we can also help strategize and help each other strategize for the next time. So it's not as to say, you're not alone with your mistake. You know, we're going to help you. You can even maybe help me once in a while to like offer some suggestions. How do I fix my mistake? Um, I do think having that more open conversation sets a nice tone. You've touched on this a little bit, but I would love it if you could kind of dive into how rich talk in your own house with your own children, how it then kind of the trickle down effect. So do children then start communicating differently with other children in class, with other adults? Like how does it kind of get passed along? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And something I can even tell you a story of recently something that happened in my house, um, which is just that um, my daughter and I, we would always often plan fun things for each other, kind of like leave each other notes and have this kind of communication where we felt like, okay, if one of us feels down, you know, write a note saying like, oh, I hope you feel better. And, um, and recently, my son is actually starting school late, just because his school starts later, my daughter's school starts earlier. And he was feeling very down about it, because he wanted to start school too. Uh, so he has this week where there's, you know, not much going on. And so my daughter and I were talking about this. And you know, they're five years apart. So he's only five, and she's 10. Um, you know, and she said, oh, I do think he's, he's having a hard time. He seems like he's acting out a little. And I was like, yeah, well, I think he's feeling really sad that he doesn't get to go to school yet. You know, his school isn't starting. And we started thinking about like, I wonder how we could make him feel better. And she had this idea from something she had watched on TV. And she thought, oh, I wonder if I made him like a funny bag every morning, like art day for Monday, science day for Tuesday, and I could make a video for him. And so he's, she's actually doing that this week where um, every day, today's art day. And so she has, she put in some silly string and chalk and other things in a bag. And the night before she actually made him a video on our cell phone, you know, say, hi, tomorrow's art day. And, you know, you're going to get to, you know, put silly string on your dad and things like that. Um, and he is so funny and he just has watched it over and over. Um, and it's really brought kind of a joy to his day. Um, and sort of, I think because she's in a good place, um, that she has school and because we've had a lot of these talks about empathy, 
um, not necessarily always using that word, but she's feeling like, okay, I can extend this to my brother too, which has been really fun to see. Oh gosh, that just warms my heart. And I love, you know, yeah, at that age, you don't know what the word empathy means. Exactly. (laughs) But you know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of it. And I think it's just so wonderful to be nurturing that because I think it's Mm -hmm. something that, I mean, I look back and I I hope it's changed, but uh, the nice kids weren't always the cool kids. They weren't the ones that people were, you know, uh, getting really excited about. There were a lot of, you know, the hierarchy of school is difficult. And it's like, I I bet as a parent, there's nothing better than like having a teacher or another adult say like, your child is very nice and they think of others. And it's like, yes, (laughs) that's what we need. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And, and I definitely would add that, you know, my children are not, you know, certainly being five years apart, that's not something that happens 100% of the time, you know, so I do note that because that was, you know, a bright moment. But it's definitely we face the same things as most other families, I'm sure, with that sort of back and forth and figuring out how to manage conflict and the squabbling and things like that. So um, I'd say it's always a process. <laughs> I love that we're having this conversation. I actually uh, coach for a nonprofit that works with girls in the ages of uh, third through fifth grade. And last season was the spring was my first season. And, you know, it's 40 young girls and a bunch of adults. And everyone last season was a parent except for me. And there was one afternoon where I was running with a young girl and we're running and we're talking. And she like turns and looks at me and she goes, so whose kid is yours? And I was like, oh, I don't have a kid. And she was like, then why are you here? And I was like, I, I don't know how to explain. Like, I wanted to be involved. You know, like, yeah. it's that awkward question. Like, well, why did you want to volunteer? And you're like, because I'm a good person? I don't know. But yeah. it, it has felt like a really great opportunity for me to kind of make sure that some of the things that I know I struggled with as a younger person – that I can help break some of that. And so I think, you know, going in confidently and just realizing like it's not – one, you're not – I'm not going to connect with every girl on the team. That's just not how it's going to work. But it's not as like speaking a different language as I think some people might think it is. Like I, I love when adults are like, oh, I'm just not good with kids. And I was like, what does that mean? Yes, yes. And I think that so much of it is the sense that we need to be a certain kind of person for kids. Um, And I think what's so important to realize is that kids really want us to be more of ourselves often. And so really just letting a child know, you know, how are you doing today? If you're not doing great, you know, let the child know that, you know, this is within reason, obviously. But um, yeah, to really be yourself and to rely on your actual strengths and your curiosities, I think is so important. What else should we be talking about not just with back to school, but as the school year is going on and as children are getting older and kind of changing the way we handle things, like how are parents constantly evolving to match what their child needs, especially when it comes to communication? Yes. I think that's a great question, especially these days, I would say when kids are you know, often going back to school after maybe being partly online, et cetera. And there's a lot of challenges, I would say, especially around technology. I've seen a lot of concerns about, well, how much can I use screens? Um, How much are we battling about that? And one thing I think about, especially is this idea of the A being adaptive, um, which I talk a lot about in the book. But especially when we talk about screen time, I think it's so important to adapt and realize that all screen time, for example, isn't created equal. So I really try to emphasize, you know, let's focus less on, is my child on a screen or not on a screen? 
and more on, well, what are they doing there? Is it active? Are they engaging with people? Are they able to be creative? You know, and how can I help them be more creative and active in their screen time use? So kind of evolving from a perspective of black and white, you know, bad or good, screens or none, and thinking about, well, let's move with what's engaging and interesting to my child and helping them get there. I'm wondering how you address new adults in a child's life. For example, there have been a lot of conversations in the last few years about autonomy, especially with children and going into scenarios with adults who they don't know. Like, How do you have those conversations with your child about communicating at home in a safe space, but, you know, like, obviously you're going to go somewhere and and there's a difference between falling in line with how we speak to one another at home and, and, you know, kind of being very open and honest and they might find themselves someplace where they don't feel comfortable. And so it's like, it, it, I think sometimes for kids, it's very black or white. Like they don't know that there's a middle ground of gray area and like they get to decide who they want to share those things with. Definitely. Yes. And I think having those conversations can start at home and really create the foundation. Um, And actually, when you talk about conversations explicitly, you're setting that foundation. You know, what are the things we do at home? What are the ways we talk at home? You know, let's talk about how that's different from the ways things are happening at school. You know, let's talk about, you know, is it a question of, say, your teacher is, is she strict or is she just, you know, more emphasizing cleanliness? You know, is she... Do you feel like it's a mean thing or do you feel like it's just she has a different tone than I do, for example? So actually trying to understand with your child, you know, what are the differences kind of in the cultures of each place can really go a long way to helping your child feel comfortable in both of the places. And I know you touched on it's important for the parents to know like when they're at their best and like when they're connecting with their child. And like that's probably going to change every single day. You know, I it's the like – outdated trope like kids come from home from school and mom's waiting there and she's like how was your day and the kids just like grumble and move on and it's like yeah they did that that was actually like a thing and like right right i think especially you know for people who are neurodivergent you don't think about like the overstimulation like and kids don't know that they need to say i need 10 minutes like i need to not be talked at or asked things of and all of those things and so it's just like so important to like be present and keep trying Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely think that space is so important. So especially for kids who are neurodivergent to recognize that we as adults often want, you know, we get home, we immediately want answers. You know, how was the day? What happened? Who were you with? What was the most fun? And we're doing that with the best of intentions. We want to connect. But sometimes those conversations and those questions feel just sort of like more probing than your child can handle at that moment. Um, So sometimes I do actually think about, well, let everyone settle in. Let everyone do kind of what is the comforting thing for them to do when they get home. Maybe it's making a snack. Maybe it's turning on some music. Maybe it's taking a five-minute walk. You know, whatever it is to kind of settle in from the day can often set such a different foundation for having a conversation and not feeling like, oh, I have to get all those answers immediately. Um, And sometimes often I've seen that kids want to talk about something that feels really random at the end of the day. You know, they'll say like, oh, I had peanut butter with cheese, you know, or something like that, completely random. And just to let them do that and kind of like that can often lead to some of the quote unquote answers that we want. (laughs) Rebecca Rowland is my guest today. We're talking about the art of talking with children. It's her book that basically helps set up adults to have better conversations and 
then better relationships with the children in their lives. And I know that it has been reprinted in different languages. And so I'm curious how what you're talking about with Rich Talk, how it can cross over into different cultures. Because obviously, how we communicate in different cultures is different, but the art of communication is still very much the same. Definitely. Yes. And so I think that's what I love about talking with people from all over the world is that I do see these differences in communication and we can validate them as being so important to recognize, well, what are your strengths within your own community? And that's why I love this ABC framework because the A for adaptive really does allow you to tailor it to your family culture, your classroom culture, your you know national culture of you know we don't do that in this culture and and I definitely emphasize in my book to be humble and recognize that I don't ever present strategies that you know for example everyone should do it this way because I recognize that in some families and some cultures you know that would seem odd that would seem inappropriate that would seem you know frustrating etc and so I think it's so important to take what I'm suggesting what other people suggest and tailor it to what actually seems to fit within your lives. I'm interested to know in the research that you've done and the conversations you've had with people across the world, was there anything that stood out as like, oh, or like one of those things where you're like, that's so cool. I, I envision like when we were very young and in school and you'd have like the graphics of like the different cultures up on the wall and they would explain how they celebrate certain holidays and things like that. And so it's like, you just don't think that people do things differently than you until you get outside of your bubble. Exactly. Yes. And I think for me, um, there have been a couple things. I'd say um, one, I've talked to some really interesting researchers from Australia, especially, who focused on what they call emotional reminiscing. So really talking about painful experiences in a way that helps kids process them. Um, and that's something that there's research in the US too, but something they've really developed over there, especially. And it's shown to be actually so helpful for children's mental health, for their well-being and so on. If you can actually rehearse and talk over things that happened that didn't go well in a child's life and help them realize that the strengths that they had. So for me, that was really cool to feel like, oh, even things like your child got really scared of the doctor. When you actually talk about that and you're open with that, um, that can be something that's so powerful as a learning experience for your child. So where should parents or adults begin? If, if they listen to this, they get the book, they read it or they listen to it, and they start to implement some of the rich talk into their own lives, like, is there a perfect starting point? Or how do you suggest, like, they move forward? Yeah. So I would say um, really just try, almost seeing it as an experiment, try just a couple of times, take five minutes a day, maybe twice a day, and see if you can try out some of the strategies that I mentioned in the book. Um, try some of the conversation starters see what happens and actually ask your child, you know, what did you like about that? Or what did you not like about that? Um, and use it as a jumping off point. See if anything changes um, in your dynamics after the fact, maybe immediately after the fact, or even in the day afterwards. And just notice, oftentimes I found that parents tell me when they start these kind of conversation starters, or they start these kind of openers, kids actually ask for them afterwards. So there's actually kind of starting a routine that kids are really engaged by. So you don't necessarily have to feel like, oh, I'm going to do this every day. Just try jump-starting it and seeing what happens. I'm wondering, and this, I guess, would be more for like the adults who have children in their life or parents who live separately, how technology plays a role in that because it's not just phone calls any longer. We have Zoom and you know we have FaceTime and it's much more interactive, but it can 
be different for people. And there's obviously like the different age demographics. And so how should someone take tech into consideration when, you know, building those relationships? Yes. Well, a lot of the research does show that tech can actually be useful and helpful, especially if kids already have existing in-person relationships. So really tech is just magnifying whatever's happening in person. So if your relationship with your child is already positive, you know, and warm, and you also have a tech component because you have to go away or you can't be there all the time, that can be a really helpful addition. So I don't think virtual relationships can replace kind of in-person relationships. There's a lot to actually being in person and kind of this embodied sense where you can actually physically be with someone. But if that's not always possible, then yes, definitely technology is sort of the next best thing and is much better than nothing oftentimes. Um, So I really do emphasize using technology to our benefit when we can. And I don't want to push you to jump ahead by any means of the imagination, but the book is out. It's being republished in, you know, different languages and, and being spread across the world. So when you look at what you've discovered already and what you're sharing, what comes next? That's a great question. So I have a couple of ideas that I'm working on. And actually, one of them is something for kids, um, a book for kids, thinking about how they can have these kind of conversations with parents and with adults and kind of so flipping it on its head. Um, that's something I'm really interested in is how to help kids directly um, writing a book for them. That's awesome. Well, Rebecca, it was such a pleasure. Please tell me where people can find the book. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is wonderful. Um, people can find the book on my website. So it's just RebeccaRoland.com um, with two C's and two L's. Or they can also go to Amazon or HarperCollins and find it there as well. And I will have all of the links in the show note as well. So you can check that out. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me. You might meet your forever friends in high school. There's really no way to say for certain. You may find them in college or at your first job, and it is entirely possible you know them already. And the unfortunate reality is, as you grow and change and learn, so will your friendships. And then there will be a day, when you are older, where you will realize that we all have played the villain in someone else's story. At some point, we are the bad guy, the mean girl, whether we know the magnitude of our role or not. Don't let that time be in high school. Don't fall into the trap that's been set by the generations that came before you. We're sorry about that. We didn't know any better, but we do now. And I think a lot of us, when we think back on high school, our regret is simple. We wish we had been a little bit more kind. To others, yes, but also to ourselves. Gensel is a collaboration between me, Lindsay Gensel, and ADHD Online, a telemedicine healthcare leader offering affordable and accessible ADHD assessments, medication management, and teletherapy. You can find out more by visiting ADHDonline.com.
The show's music was created by Lewis Inglis, a songwriter and composer based out of Perth, Australia, who was diagnosed with ADHD in 2020 at the age of 39. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening now. Give us a follow on social media and join us next week for another episode of Refocused with Lindsay Gensel.